all those curveballs that life throws us are trying to derail us. And you've got to have a real good sense of yourself and what's important to you to continue to navigate that path. From the Texas Veterinary Medical Association in Austin, Texas, this is Veterinary Vitals, a show that features open and honest conversations with veterinary professionals. I'm your host, Dina Goldstein, Media Coordinator for TVMA. Many veterinarians hold multiple and sometimes competing roles. Veterinarians are parents, volunteers, athletes, professors, authors, and perhaps a member of a TVMA committee. The list goes on. Well, how do they manage all of these roles? Our guest today, Dr. Jennifer Lavender, shares her strategies for fulfilling all of her professional and personal duties. She's the owner and practitioner of Metropause Animal Hospital in Dallas and the medical director of the Oak Cliff location. Beyond her full-time roles, she's a volunteer surgeon of the Spay-Neuter Network and president of its board of directors. She also is a single mother of two. And to recharge, she practices yoga. In this episode, you'll not only hear about how she juggles these activities, but also how she copes with the devastating loss of her sister and remains sober. She even touches on what in-home euthanasia means to her. She's been through a lot and has come out on the other side with resilience, strength, and positivity. This is probably one of the most deep, vulnerable, and heavy conversations I've had with a guest on the show. But we start off light. First, Dr. Lavender breaks down how she stays organized so she can stick to all of her commitments and stay focused on what's most important to her. Here she is. I am a voracious planner and scheduler. Um, my Google calendar is like a rainbow of colors and everything's color coordinated. Um, I'm very careful with making sure that everything fits in its little puzzle piece so that I can get all the things done that I commit to doing. Um, I, I try to be very cognizant of not saying yes to things that I can't not only fulfill, but, but fulfill beyond other people's expectations and my own as well. It's real important to me to always show up and do the best I can at whatever I'm doing. So is that a struggle, uh, saying no when people ask you? That's a big struggle. (laughs) That's a big struggle. Um, in addition to the things that, that you mentioned, um, I also do have a mobile orthopedics business where I go to other practices and I'll do surgical procedures at other practices. Um, that is one in particular that I never, ever, ever want to say no to, because if I say no, a lot of times it means that, um, those animals are left with broken legs until I can get to them and get them fixed. Um, and so there's a lot of just pressure to, to try and and say yes. And so, um, what I found myself doing early on with that particular obligation was I would say yes looking at my calendar, knowing that I wasn't going to be able to do it at that time, I would just say yes. And then I have to unscramble that later. And so what I started doing in that situation was I wouldn't answer the phone calls. I would let them go to voicemail. And that way I could get the information, I could process it. And then I would make sure that I would, would only book a time that I actually had available. But, you know, they wanted me to do it at a time and I wanted to do it then. And I would say yes, even though um, that slot happened to already be booked. So that was probably my, my 
my biggest hurdle with trying to figure out how to um, not overextend myself. Yeah. Yeah. It seems kind of like a muscle that we have to build learning how to say no to things. It's so much easier to just be like, yes, I can do that. Um, yeah, absolutely. So if someone were to ask you, Hey, I'm having a really hard time. I have all these commitments. It's really hard for me to say no. Uh, can you help me in determining what I should say yes to what I should say no to? Like, is there a process that helps? Yeah, I mean, I think that first of all, you want to kind of make a list of all the things, not only that you feel like you're expected to do, but the things that you want to do as well. Like when I talked earlier about my Google Calendar having all these color coded, coordinated things on there, a lot of what's on there is um, stuff that I wanted to do. Like if I want to go for a walk, I put that on my calendar. If I want to go for go to yoga, I put that on my calendar. Um, and so some people will look at my calendar and they say, you know, I've booked every single minute, but a lot of what I've booked on there is downtime for me. But when I put it on the calendar, I've carved it out and I've basically said that these things that are just for me are just as important as the things that I have on there that are for other people. And so that's been a really, really useful tool. So the first thing I would tell people is to, to make a list, again, not only of what you feel like other people expect of you, but what do you need and want for yourself and make sure that those things are on your list and prioritize. And then for me, it was also important what the flexibility of, of the thing was. For example, one of the reasons that I quit skating on my roller derby team was that the practice times were so limited. So I might want to skate once or twice a week. But when it's only offered once or twice a week, it starts to really um, pigeonhole me at those particular times. Whereas if I want to go to yoga, it's offered a gazillion times a week. Um, and so trying to, to kind of um, pick activities that have more flexibility was very helpful for me to make sure that I still could do them. I just had to maybe move around where, when and where they were. I feel like when you carve out time for relaxing that downtime, it helps with establishing boundaries. Have you noticed that? Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think it just, it allows you to say, you know, I'm unable to, to do that at this time. You know what, um, there's another thing that I learned, um, and I only learned this a few years ago, and it was my business partner that taught me this lesson, and I have repeated this so many times, and I've, I've been helping my kids learn this, <laughs> and that is the fact that when you are unable to do something when someone wants you to, you don't have to tell them why. The answer is simply, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be able to do that at three, but I can at five. When you give them the reason you can't do it at three, all you've done is empower them to make a judgment on whether or not what you're doing is a, a valid reason to not do what they want you to do. So they don't need to know that I'm organizing my closet or I'm going to yoga. The answer is simply, I'm sorry, I'm unable at three o'clock. And that, that was a very, very um, enlightening moment when she explained that to me I've never ever forgotten that I've quoted her so many times on that yeah that's really that's a really great note so you also want to talk about work-life balance which by having a schedule like that you really are working towards having that balance so why do you think it's important to not only you but the but your colleagues in the profession well I, I do think another thing about work-life balance that I think is real important is work and life to me should not be mutually exclusive. If you're in a career that's so miserable to you that you're having to do a lot of balancing, you're probably not where you need to be. So I, I was fortunate. I knew from a very early age what I wanted to do. I've always been very passionate about my profession. 
Um, so when I go to work, I am working. There are days that aren't great, but for the most part, I love what I do. And I don't feel like I'm just having to punch my clock to get money to go have my life. To me, my life is, is in both places. And so that allowed me when I was working more hours than I do now to not feel like I was away from my life or away from my family. Cause I really do have a life and family with the people that I work with. So I think that that's really important for, um, for work-life balance. My profession is very much a people profession. You know, we, our focus is our patients are animals, but the people that are bringing them in and having to advocate for what those pets need are their owners. They're the ones that ultimately have to approve the treatment plans and pay for them. And so our ability to communicate with people, I think, is very dependent on our emotional state. How patient are we in explaining things to people in a way that they can understand and help them see the value in what we want to do for their pets? So I think that being able to come to work with just a clear mind and a good, low stress, emotionally healthy place um, is very is very useful in the profession for that reason. And then just as far as my colleagues and other people I work with, it would kind of be the same thing. I mean. I think happy people are more enjoyable to be around than people that are disgruntled and dissatisfied. So can you think of an experience where you came to work either in a really great mood or just in a mood where you were kind of frustrated and then you've seen its impact on the people you work with? Oh yeah. Well, first of all, um, early on in my career when we established Metropause, I was still at the Skillman location. There were a couple of days where I remember feeling just really fed up with things at home and the kids and just stress there. And I remember walking through the door at work and just feeling the weight lifted. It was like, whoa, I fit here. I have a purpose. And, um, and I'm proud of what I do and I'm good at what I do. And so all of those things were very validating and helped bolster me up at work to go home. And then I feel like that happens on the flip side too. There are other times when days at the office are stressful and it's your home life that kind of bolsters you up. And it's, it's important to really foster that type of supportive environment in both places so that they can synergistically help each other. My job is funny. Um, we started doing a couple of years ago and it was my idea to do it. And I, I'm part of me regretted doing this, but we started doing these 360 degree surveys where everyone in the hospital reviews everyone else. And at the time that we started doing those, I was having a lot of stress outside of work. And I definitely think that it was manifested in my behavior at work, just being less patient with people, very much just biting the head off the messenger of whoever is bringing me the phone message or whatever, not just not pleasant. And when I got that survey back and read that cumulatively, this is how my coworkers see me, it was really hard to read, but very eye-opening. And we, we do those surveys annually, but when I got mine back and I didn't hit the marks that I would have wanted to, I requested that mine be done every three months so that I could keep tabs on that because that was a really clear measurement to me that something was off in my work-life balance because I was coming into work so wound so tight. And so I really made a conscious effort for an entire year having those surveys done every quarter. And I would sit in my car and kind of take a deep breath and just set my mood and set my tone and make a decision that I'm going to walk in and I'm going to be kind and friendly and patient. And I think a little bit was fake it till you make it. But I do believe that when we start behaving in a certain way, 
that positive energy that we're putting out ends up coming back to us and it's very reinforcing. And so I'm happy to say I no longer need to do quarterly surveys, um, but it was a, it was a really good, and like I said, measurable. I mean, we score them and so you have an actual number and, and to move that needle was really exciting. Wow, that's so interesting. All of us at TVMA were having our annual reviews and the idea of having all of my coworkers and for me to review all my, <laughs> my coworkers to review me, that just seems so interesting, like to get that perspective. Yeah, and part of the reason was that when I'm doing a review, it's one thing to say, I think you don't help your coworkers on the floor. I think you don't pull your weight. But when I can show them 87% of your coworkers feel like you don't carry your weight. It's much more powerful and it's not just me picking on them. And so that was really the motivation for it. Um, to, honestly, I just expected mine to be all sunshine and rainbows. And when they weren't, it was like, wow. And the other thing I learned from that was that before doing those surveys, those people, my staff had no voice. They were frustrated with things I was doing and they had no place to you vocalize that. And so um, it's been very, very valuable from just an overall practice standpoint to give them that outlet. Wow. So it's anonymous when you get those. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's all, we do it all on SurveyMonkey now. Um, and so they answer all the questions and then we compile them. And so when we present them at the review, it's all cumulative. Um, we don't, we don't go into detail about any one person survey. From the first time you received results from that first 360 that you did up until now what are some big changes that you've made like what have you worked on i i think the biggest thing is not snapping at people my job is i'm so busy we are spread really thin just in terms of the caseload and i tend to be i thrive in that environment i like being busy i used to do full-time emergencies so when things come in i always say yes 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 i'll take that i'll take that and i i load myself pretty heavy um i also am the practice owner and it feels like that's appropriate versus trying to push all that off onto my associates who didn't really sign up to work 90 miles an hour and so in doing that i need to make sure that if i am doing that i'm not sacrificing my just generosity to the people around me in terms of just my patience with them and that kind of thing. And what about on the other side of things? Like you participated in the survey. Have you seen a coworker change because of other comments, like in a, in a positive way? Yes, on a smaller scale. When I chose to have mine done quarterly, we extended that invitation. If anyone else would like to have theirs done quarterly, that's available. Nobody else signed up for that because yeah. um, they're hard to hear. What's interesting about those surveys is that every person's profile looks the same every year. So whatever you struggle with, it will come out on those surveys. And next year, yours is going to show the same thing because it really, it really illustrates what's in our hard wiring. And so I don't expect anyone to, to look completely different next year. What I want to see is just improvement. I want to see the needle moved a little bit. And we do an overall clinic average. And so whatever that average is, we kind of consider that our like clinic culture score. And if you're above that, you're contributing in a positive way to our clinic culture. Okay, I have to stop. That loud sound you heard, that was one of her two kids closing a cabinet door. They were in the kitchen with her during this interview. 
so I hope you'll forgive us for the occasional random noise. That's part of life as a single mother of two in the middle of quarantine. I hope you'll understand. All right, back to clinic work culture. And if you're below that, then I have to question whether or not you're bringing the culture down. Um, so that's kind of how we help quantify things for people. Uh, but I was the only one that wanted to, to do them every quarter. And um, it's a scale of one to five. And I mean, I moved mine over an entire point, you know, that's a 20% change, which is really, really huge. And I do see other people try, but it's just really hard to keep that in mind all the time. It says a lot about you, the fact that you're willing to do quarterly uh, 360s versus just annually like that. That kind of shows that you're very receptive to feedback and it's important for you to grow and evolve. Yeah, absolutely. And then you also wanted to discuss compassion fatigue. Mm -hmm. So tell me about what that feels like. My job requires so much empathy and in so many just really, really deeply emotional situations. I mean, euthanasia is obviously the most, most obvious one it becomes one harder and harder to continue to emote that to other people. Um, and then it also starts to just kind of linger with you and, and be kind of just a yucky feeling all the time. And the kind of the consequence is that the natural reaction is to wall things off and kind of harden yourself from what's going on around you. And that's, I think we can't be the best veterinarians possible or, or that we could be um, when we start to do that. So we have to really continue to put ourselves in those situations, put our hearts out there and have really good support networks and people to talk to to help process some of the things that, that go on. One of the things I've been really proud about our profession um, is that we are so quick to talk to each other about things that we've been through and importantly places that we've made mistakes or things that haven't gone the way that we wanted to. I think it's important to learn from each other's mistakes but I think it's also important to realize that everyone goes through them and we all still come through them on the other side and and do better the next time. And so what are some coping strategies that you've used? You know you need a balance um, being empathetic, but also not taking things too close to heart because then you'll just walk around so heavy. So how do you balance? What are the strategies you have? Well, I'll tell you one of the things, again, like I think the most obvious source of compassion fatigue would be euthanasia. Um, and I've always been very, very celebratory of euthanasia. I think it is a beautiful, beautiful option. Um, There's so many times when I say I'm a veterinarian and people say, oh my gosh, I could never do it because you have to put animals down. And my response is very, very strong that, you know what, I couldn't do this if that wasn't an option. Because there are so many cases where it is just truly a gift. It's a gift that we don't give to our fellow man. And the fact that we are able to, to give that gift to our pets is a blessing. And I had two cases very early on in my career where um, the owners were, not, were against euthanasia for different reasons. Um, but both of those cases stand out in my mind as, um, as those babies being denied that gift and that peace. And I watched with those two particular dogs, things that I'll never forget. That was probably my first year of practice. And 
20 years later, I still think back to those two dogs, those two cases, because they remind me that we have that we have this gift for them. And so I won't say that I enjoy euthanasia, but I will say that um, from a very early time in my career, I have felt like it was part of why I was called to this profession. I really feel like a lot of my mission as a veterinarian is related to sharing that gift and the right circumstance and at the right time. It's always been a huge mission of mine to honor people's requests with euthanasia. When we started Metropause and we sat down and we said, what are your deal breakers about what you have to have in your practice? And the the one thing, my number one thing was, I want to be able to offer home euthanasia no matter how busy we are. I never want us to take that off the table because it's it's a real profit loss. When you take your doctor out of the building for an hour, hour and a half, you cannot charge enough to cover their absence from the building. And so it has to be something that you're committed to because it's important to you. And that was my number one thing. And so when I do go into those euthanasias, I really see them as an opportunity on, on how to help that person through that journey, how to honor as much of their requests as I possibly can, and how to make it as peaceful as I can for their pet. So in doing that, I take what should be the most compassion draining part of my field, and I turn it into something that is very, very precious and sacred to me. And I will say I don't cry many times alongside my client, but sometimes it's, it's tears of joy. Like we'll, we'll start talking about their favorite memory of that pet or where their name came from. Um, but I try to help them celebrate what they had and their pet's transition and not what they feel like they're losing. I'm just uh, taking that all in. And to switch to a very personal note, you told me that you're a recovering alcoholic. So I wanted to know um, about this part of your life. Like, what, Why do you feel like you want to share this with everyone? Our profession, um, you know, we have a really high rate of suicide. We have a really high rate of substance abuse, not just alcohol, but drugs. We have access to drugs that a lot of other professions don't. So I think that there is a, definitely a substance abuse problem in our, in our field that's not talked about. And, and maybe that's just more across the board, but, um, but, but definitely I do think that the statistics show that it's in our field. One of the things that I've always felt really strongly about is, is learning from other people, learning from their experiences and learning from their, their triumphs. One of the missions of AA is that alcoholics have to go to the meetings to be able to share the message with someone else who's suffering. I don't get to go to as many meetings as I would like. And so part of my service work back to, to AA, which is what I got sober through, is to be real open about it and willing to talk about it. And I've had people from all walks of my life reach out to me and say, you know, hey, can you go to a meeting with me? Hey, can you connect me with someone who's been in my shoes? And I just, I think it's real important for us to learn from each other's journey, whatever that was. Mine just happens to have been an alcohol abuse. Mm -hmm. So can you think of a time where you shared your story and it has helped someone? All the time. One time specifically, my sister who passed away, my sister died of an alcohol-related accident and she was traveling in Italy when she died. And I was telling my story and her story is part of my story. 
And after the meeting, this woman came up to me and she said, oh my gosh, I can't believe you, you shared that. I've always dreamed of going to Italy. That's my dream. And I've always said that if I can make it to Italy, then that's the one time and the one place that I get to drink wine because that's where it came, where it comes from. And so she was so excited about this free pass she had, which was to go to Italy and drink wine. And she said, you know, you, your story made me realize it doesn't matter where I am, whether I'm in the U.S. or in Italy, I'm still an alcoholic and I can't drink. And so that was kind of a, a neat story because she felt like I was speaking directly to her. So that was fun. Many times people will come up after a meeting and just point out something that I said that, that made a difference to them. But that one was real specific. So how is your story and your sister's story, um, how do they overlap related to alcohol? My relationship with alcohol isn't just what I consume, but it's how it affects me. So if other people are drinking around me or active in their disease, then their alcoholism is still affecting me. Um, with my sister in particular, I've always been very proud of the fact that I got sober and I've always felt like I beat alcohol and it can't hurt me anymore and I, I, I won. And so when alcohol came back into my life and took my sister from me, it was really, really upsetting, not just the loss of her, but the fact that that, that, that that thing could come back and still affect me like that. Wow. I'm so sorry for your loss. Thank you. So t tell me how the loss of your sister has impacted your life in every aspect. When you lose someone that's that close to you, um, the depth of the grief is just unconscionable unless you've been through it. And I have lost people before and I have lost beloved pets and I have had hard things happen to me and shed a lot of tears. But there are just some, some losses that absolutely just emasculate us and just take us down to our core and kind of redo all your wiring. Nothing's ever the same again. Um, I don't think that people understand that until they're in the club. I don't, nobody wants in this club, but you don't get it until you, you're in it. One of the things that I've realized is that when I saw people go through extreme loss, I'm thinking in particular of a friend whose son had passed away in a ATV accident. He was 11 and he was her only child. And I wasn't sure what to say to her. And so I never said anything. And one of the things that I realized in going through this is that it's better to just try to say something, muddle through it, reach out to that person, um, because we don't know what's going to help them through their journey. Uh, everybody is different in what they need. But I think that we're so afraid of grief. We're so afraid of talking about it, of saying the wrong thing that we isolate ourselves from those people. And um, that's, that's one thing that's very different. My perspective on really everything has changed. I used to think that things were a big deal or a big loss. And then I realized that the scale of how, how deep the loss can be is octaves and octaves lower than what I thought it was. And so um, it lets me kind of not sweat the small stuff as much because I, I know that it is small. I was just thinking of what the, it reminds me of. Fortunately, I haven't had one of those 
big losses and I really can't imagine it like you're saying until it happens and I'm this huge uh Hamilton nerd and there's this song called It's Quiet Uptown have you heard of it no part of the lyrics are uh they're going through the unimaginable Mm-hmm. And um, the person who wrote it, like, he had never lost. The, it's about losing someone's son. And he's like, I never lost my son. But I wrote, he wrote it from the place of, like, okay, if I were to, I just can't even imagine it. So just the the way you talk about it, that's what it reminds me of. Yeah. And I do think about that, too. I mean, I lost my sister, but my mom lost her daughter. I mean, it's just... It is unimaginable. It really is. Yeah. Oof. It's hard. And so you uh, mentioned that you have found comfort in pursuing some hobbies. So can you tell me about those hobbies and how they've helped you? Probably. Well, one of the things that I got into was yoga, and that was something that my sister was really into. Um, So that was fun to be able to do um, because it reminds me of her. Some of the time, it's funny because she, uh, I used to think that namaste meant it was like, have a nice day. It was kind of slang term for have a nice day. (laughs) And she was the one that kind of laughed at me good naturedly and said, you know, that's not what that means. And (laughs) she told me, you know, that, that it means the light in me sees and honors the light in you. And what was really cool about that was that my whole life, she absolutely saw and honored and fueled the light in me more than anyone in my whole life. And so now when I do yoga and at the end of it, we say that, I really feel like she's there. I mean, there are many times where we're laying there in the dark and I just have tears streaming down my face because I feel like she's present in that moment. Um, So that was a really cool hobby to get into and one that really had a, a much deeper meaning for me. I've really enjoyed that. And then also I just kind of got back into fitness a little bit too because of her, because part of her accident was she was paralyzed and she was in a coma for seven weeks. And while she was in that coma, um, I made a decision to not take for granted the fact that every morning I get out of bed and walk down the stairs. And even if she had lived, that would have never been an option for her. So that got my body moving, which was a really important part of my grief so that I wasn't just stagnant. But the other thing that I got into was I started doing roller derby. Yeah. That was a lot of fun. That was a little bit of a, of a dare, but I had gone to this, (laughs) this fundraiser and the theme was seventies, just seventies party. And I thought it would be funny if I went as a seventies roller derby person. So I had on like a, a bandana and knee highs and I wore my skates to the party and everyone was kind of laughing and saying, Oh, I thought you really did it. And I said, <laughs> I don't think they're still doing that. And um, I ended up finding out a friend of mine did it. She and I had coffee and I learned more about the sport. And then the guy I was dating at the time, he just said, like, I think you should, I think you should try out. And it turned out the tryouts were that weekend. So he went and bought all my pads and my helmet and I was literally taking the tags off of them at tryouts. And, you know, here I was 39, 40, too old to start that, start playing roller derby. Um, but, but I made the team, I got drafted. I ended up, I was captain of my team for several years and I absolutely 
loved it. I loved the sport. I loved the community. I loved meeting other women that were also so passionate about the same thing. It was really, really fun. And it was also very empowering and rejuvenating to just take on this wild hair that you didn't think you could do and, and figure out that you can. And it was a huge challenge in that. I thought I was a pretty good skater until I started skating with those ladies and, and they were really, really talented. And I definitely was better by the time I quit, but um, that was a really fun hobby. And how long did you do that for? Six seasons, six years. Okay, nice. Do you miss it at all? Um, I do sometimes. I miss, um, I miss skating. I miss my friends. Um, I don't miss getting my head knocked around so much. It was, it's a very, very, it's a high contact sport. I think I did it long enough. I mean, I broke my ankle one season. I had several concussions. And so I think I did it long enough. Yeah. And for some reason, I just feel the need to ask you this question. Um, do you have any daily rituals? No, I, and I shouldn't say that because I, there's a lot of things that I should be better at doing daily for my, um, for my 12 step program. The biggest thing that I probably do is I make my bed every day. And that was one thing that my sponsor really drilled into me was to just kind of try to leave the, the path behind you tidy and the way you would want it to be should other people find it and so I, I do do that every morning that's a good idea <laughs> I can say my bed's not made right now and I know there's that serenity prayer right like that's from yes. AA. Um, yes I mean I love that and I'm not a recovering alcoholic like I just that's just so um can you can you repeat it so I don't butcher it yeah it's God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Yeah, yeah I, I quote that a lot. Yeah, I think it just can help with so much because there's so many things that we're like, oh, like are just beyond our control. You know, you just, you can't change it. And it's important to know when, you know, to identify, okay, this is something I can make a change. And this is something that it's just the way it is. Yeah, the serenity prayer has been a huge help to me. Um, it's very much about mm -hmm. setting boundaries, which I think is also really important for work-life balance and also important for um, compassion fatigue that we talked about because it's not just what happens during work, but it's the emotional hooks that the people around you have in you as well and what they're expecting from you. And I think sometimes, I, at least I know I do this, a lot of times I feel like I want more for people than they want for themselves, or I want, I think I know what's best for them, and I get really worked up in these, these movies of the way things should be. Um, and the Serenity Prayer really helps me remember that, that those movies are in my head, I need to set those aside, try and really accept what is reality. And then once I accept what's reality, the part that's my choice, is how much do I want to be involved in that? How much do I want to be responsible for the other people involved in that situation? In doing that, you really free yourself up from, from getting drained over and over and over. Um, so one thing I wanted to mention that's very exciting is in 2018, you were on the list, let's see, Advocate Magazine's coveted spots on the list of five fierce females of East Dallas. 
Mm -hmm. So tell me about that. Like, what is that and what does it mean to you? That was really exciting. Um, they had, I think the advocate has three or four areas in Dallas and they had picked women um, that they felt like exhibited certain characteristics and, and the theme was fierce and strong and ambitious, I guess, um, in a good way. <laughs> yeah. um, but it was really neat because I was amongst city council women and other political figures, um, many business owners, philanthropists, just people that I felt like had a lot more, uh, were in the public eye a lot more than myself. I kind of feel under the radar. I feel like I truck along just doing what I feel like is the right thing to do at the right time. And it really helped me realize that I had accomplished a lot and I have made a difference and I have really taken the things that I'm passionate about and, um, and tried to put my time and my energy where those, where my mouth is. Um, you know, you mentioned it earlier, but I am spay neuter is very important to me. I think the key to ending overpopulation of pets and ultimately the euthanization of millions of animals a year comes from population control and aggressive spay neuter programs, not building more shelters, not trying to get more animals in homes. I mean, those are important also, but those are reactive in my opinion and not proactive at where the real problem is. I have worked with a nonprofit. I've gone overseas um, and done spay neuter programs other places as well. So the, the article that the advocate did kind of helped highlight some of those things. Um, I have walked through a lot of hard things. I overcame my own addiction. I survived my sister's death. I didn't drink after she died. We got hit by the tornado this past October and lost our house. <laughs> oh, so um, it's, you know, but that's just how life is. It's always throwing you curveballs. And I've got my own curveballs and the person sitting next to me does as well. But I think one of the things the Advocate article exemplified for me was that in receiving and trying to hit those curveballs back, I have stayed true to myself. Um, and I didn't lose sight of what was important to me along the way. That's great. I know that can be easy for people to do is to not always be themselves. Um, right. So any resources or ideas you would like to leave us with in terms of compassion fatigue, burnout, and work-life balance? I know those are a lot, but anything you didn't feel like you had a chance to share? Most of it goes back to taking the time to figure out what is really at your core, what is most important to you, and never wavering from that, that your actions, your words, your thoughts, your emotions, they all spring from the same core. And I think as long as we are true to that, we're, we're on the right path because it's the right path for us. And my biggest struggle with alcohol is it makes me lose sight of my core. I, you know, alcohol changes who we are in the moment. And for me, those moments became so many that I started to lose sight of, of what really was at my core. And I, my path started to, to deviate. Um, and I think that alcohol is just one challenge that does that to us, but, um, all those curveballs that life throws us are trying to derail us. And you've got to have a real good sense of yourself and what's important to you to continue to navigate that path. So 
Was there a moment during your recovery where you had this epiphany where you started to realize like, wow, I'm, I'm more in touch with myself now than I have been in a while? Yeah. Um, part of my journey in recovery was realizing that I had lost so much sense of myself that I didn't feel like I knew what foods I liked, what movies I liked, what I wanted to do with my time. I was so used to trying to be and do what everyone else wanted me to be and do that um, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. In fact, when I got sober, I don't even think I really meant to. I went to a meeting. I ended up meeting my sponsor and she asked me, can you not drink today and, and meet me at a meeting tomorrow? And I said, sure. I, and in my head, I'm thinking I can play that role. I can do that. And for a day. And then the next day she asked me the same thing. And the next day, the same thing. And before I knew it, I had about a week under my belt that I hadn't drank. And I started to realize that there was a person under all of that and, and someone that I liked and wanted to, to find again. And so it was a very clear moment for me. And then what was, what was more gradual was filling in those gaps and, and trying to figure out who I was. You know, my story is I started drinking mostly in college, but kind of when everyone else was outgrowing that, I never outgrew it. And so a lot of those formative and self-discovery years that we do in our 20s, I just kind of skipped over. So I had to go back and fill in a lot of gaps, um, but there was a lot of joy in doing that too. There's a, um, I feel very blessed to have had the opportunity to do that. Not everyone gets to. So how many years sober are you now? So I have uh, had nine years in April. Okay. So do you do anything special to acknowledge it? Yes. Um, my sponsor's birthday is also in April. She's got two years more than I do, but sh her birthday is two years and two days before mine, um, which is kind of cool because in AA, we have a ceremony every month where you get a chip and we celebrate the years, uh, you know, like all the April birthdays, all the May birthdays. And so it's always been really neat because she and I have the same month and we go to this, we both get a chip the same night. Um, this year was different because we don't have meetings anymore. And so, uh, she and I congratulated each other and we exchanged presents. Um, and it was funny. It was actually my daughter who pointed out, Hey mom, do you not get a chip since you don't have a meeting? And we were talking about that. We were, we were at our ranch that weekend. And as we were driving back to Dallas, we were talking about how I didn't get a chip this year. And when I got back to my house, there was an envelope and one of my friends in the program had actually ordered and mailed me a nine-year chip. And it was so pretty. It's just got all these rainbow um, sequins on it. It's real flashy, um, but it was so sweet. And it was just funny timing because my daughter had just asked me about that. Yeah, that probably meant a lot. Yeah. You know, and you're, you're helping others by sharing your story. I think that's amazing. That was Dr. Jennifer Lavender discussing why she became sober, how she copes with the unimaginable loss of her sister, how the serenity prayer helps her in so many aspects of her life, and how she balances motherhood with work, volunteering, and some downtime. Some of her strategies include making a list of duties that matter to her most, using Google Calendar, and saying no to some opportunities so she can truly fulfill her commitments. 
Dr. Lavender has overcome a lot and radiates resilience, confidence, and courage. We hope her story has shed light on the challenges facing veterinarians on not just a professional level, but a personal one as well. I have to thank Dr. Lavender for being so open and vulnerable for this episode. Thank you for tuning in to Veterinary Vitals. I'm your host, Dina Goldstein from TVMA. Thank you.